WBZ original. Sorry, I don't know who. Oh, this is a BZ number, so can I just yeah, see what this is? Hello? Hi, how are you? Today? Okay. Wow. <laughs> hey, everybody, welcome into Studio BZ. It is episode seven now of season two, and welcome into the studio. Liam Martin is off today, but I'm Paula Eben here with John Keller. Hi. Where, the, where the hell is Liam? Taking a little time. Oh, you know? downtime, huh? down dad time. Pumpkin shopping with the, with the kiddos. Right. and Exactly. Good for him. What a good Monday. dad he is. Uh, and boy, what a podcast he's missing today. Because yeah. first off, right off, right out of the gate, we'll talk about Senator Elizabeth Warren getting a DNA test on her Native American heritage. Will it change anything? Mm, that'll be interesting to watch. And then the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph Dunford, I think a lot of people know he's a local guy. He's a Quincy native. Uh, and he was also recently named the New Englander of the Year. Liam had an exclusive interview with him. Very interested to hear what the general has to say. He's quite a guy. Very interesting guy. And John, talk about the mass third district candidates. Yeah, going to be interesting to see how that turns out. A raucous Democratic primary, a well-funded Republican. We'll be talking with both of them coming up. Some people have questioned my heritage and my family history. Maybe they do it to insult me. Maybe they do it to distract from the kinds of changes I'm fighting for and the kind of change I'm trying to bring to Washington. Maybe they do it because they think politics is a blood sport. But my parents were real people. The love they shared, the struggles they endured, the family they built, the story they lived will always be etched on my heart. That's part of a long video that Senator Elizabeth Warren released the other day uh, in connection with her release of a DNA test she took that shows that, sure enough, if you go back far enough, she does have some Native American blood. And, Paul, I, I mean, right out of the box, you, you say to yourself, is this going to make any difference right. Do you think to the people that have you know, been hammering her on this for six years? Sure. So this all came up during yeah. her race against Scott Brown in 2012. Right her heritage and it turned into this Pocahontas, uh, you know, mocking thing. Do you think that this video will help her? Will the attacks stop? I, I don't think they will. For the people who dine out on this kind of red meat, uh, the whole question of her heritage uh, really was a politically toxic gold for them on a number of fronts. First of all, you have the concept of a dishonest Paul, and they will find, uh, you know, things to complain about, about the expert who did the analysis. Uh, it's already starting on Twitter. Uh, but you had, uh, you could, you could, if you were of a mind to, seize on this and accuse her of being a dishonest Paul, uh, accuse her of being a, a, a sort of a flaming hypocrite, a privileged uh, Harvard law professor, pointy head from Cambridge, who exploited affirm the affirmative action impulse right. to try to advance themselves. It, it, it tapped into that vein of identity politics, which has become such a touchstone this whole last year and a half. Right. Right. And it was a, a way also, I mean, she mentions the casual racism there. And the unfortunate fact is that if you look at polling over time, uh, Native Americans are viewed with at best skepticism 
by much of the public, uh, at times worse than skepticism. So it characterized her as sort of the other. Oh, here comes another minority group type. Uh, and, and, you know, that's a core tenet of Trumpism, right. that and, you can bash people like and that. And speaking of President Trump, he really latched on to talking about her, referring right. to her as Pocahontas at the rallies. It would always be... Uh, a big moment that would get right. a big response from the crowd at the rally. And it's similar to his, what he does not talk about at his rallies, but that he once always talked about President Obama right. not being a citizen, wanting him to release his birth certificate. Once President Obama did ultimately release the birth certificate, to a large extent, that conversation went away, but there will always be a corner of people in this country who believe he was born in Kenya and is not a citizen. Yeah, and uh, Trump kept peddling it even right. after the birth certificate was released, only back down, you may recall, during the campaign when I guess polling showed it was no longer working for him. But then he pivoted and b- tried to blame the whole thing on Hillary Clinton, right? Remember, she was the one that brought it up first. But right. I think, Paula, and this may be a novel theory. I'm just going to throw it out there. I've, I've There's always a first time to be wrong, and I'm sure my time is coming. That was a joke, <laughs> folks. I've been wrong many times. But uh, I think... There's much more to that video than just debunking well, the Pocahontas thing. Yeah, we see a thing. lot of things we've never seen from Elizabeth Warren before. The brothers. Let's start with the brothers. Who are th- all veterans. Her three older brothers with that Oklahoma drawl. Uh, a couple of them identified themselves in the video as Republicans. Separately, uh, the uh, Warren campaign described them as Fox News watchers. And they're dismissing the whole Pocahontas thing as ridiculous. And they're there with her looking over old family photos. And really, for the first time, you see her putting her her upbringing, her Oklahoma background, the military vet brothers, the uh, parents who were not poor exactly, but certainly not upper middle class. She always likes to use the phrase, I grew up on the ragged edge of the middle class. But then you see pictures that I've never seen before of her and, and her own voiceover describing how she got went into college, dropped out at age 19 to get married, had a baby, uh, then went to commuter school to go back and get her degree, and it shows her in her cap and gown mm-hmm. with with the baby. Tot. I think a lot of working mothers, a lot of people uh, who are not pointy-headed Cambridge liberals, pardon the expression, can relate to this side of Elizabeth Warren now that they're being exposed to it. Well, and isn't it interesting, you can almost see how to go from Oklahoma and to get herself eventually through all those travails to be a professor at Harvard Law School... Uh, who knows? Part of Elizabeth Warren might have wanted to sort of conceal and forget the, her Oklahoma background as a professional. She well, it was probably wasn't something that she was walking around Cambridge talking about. Like Holly Golightly in uh, in Ex- Breakfast at Tiffany's, exactly, right? Exactly, exactly. Until the daddy shows up, right? Uh, but now that she it looks like is preparing to appeal to a national audience in 2020, she can say, look, they keep talking about me as this pointy-headed liberal who owns a million-dollar house near Harvard Square, but I'm the girl from Oklahoma. Right. Much better place to try to run nationally Mm -hmm. from. Might not have mattered much 
uh, in right, Massachusetts. Right, in the race against Scott Brown. And in fact, I went back and looked at the ad she cut trying to deal with the Native American heritage thing back then. And it was just her in her living room talking to the camera, no family pictures, no nothing. This makes a lot of sense politically. The other thing, too, that's important in this video is you see one professor after another from Penn Law School, Harvard Law School, all the different places where she has either taught or she is well known, all coming out to say she never used it to be a minority hire. Uh, this has always been the implication that the reason she started talking about the Native American heritage was she must have used it in this Ivy League world as a matter of identity politics to give herself an advantage over other people. And what have we heard about the sort of white suburban male Trump voter over the last two years that one of the things that really bothers them in the world of identity politics now is some sense that other people are getting an advantage over them. So she's clearly trying to get that out of the way even though the president has talked about it a lot. And a lot of women who voted for Trump as well. Sure. Uh, working class women, a middle class, who who also uh, uh, feel aggrieved by the privilege of uh, affirmative action and uh, being a Harvard professor and all that stuff. Uh, a lot of them, if they watch this video or the ads that inevitably will be condensed out of it, are going to be confronted with a very different image of Elizabeth Warren that I think they may find a lot more appealing. And here's the question, John, is that voters will decide ultimately which Elizabeth Warren that they want to identify with or find attractive. But isn't the real problem here that she's putting this video out to get this issue out of the way if she's going to make the run for 2020? There's no other message in this video, right? There's no huge... Um, Democratic Party singular message at this point anyway. You know, they got to get past the midterms right now. But isn't the problem that they're up against the Trump juggernaut and they are a party in search of a message, in search of a leader for that next presidential well, race? Well, look, for two years, ever since Trump was elected, you've heard all sorts of hand-wringing uh, and speculation about how the Democrats need to do exactly what you're describing, Paula, come up with a message. But the bottom line is there's no party leader. Who's the leader of the Democratic Party? Nancy Pelosi? Right. No thanks. They made sure it wasn't Bernie Sanders. It's not Bernie Sanders. It's not Joe Biden. So I think Warren is simply saying, I'm not waiting around Mm. for uh, these folks. And I know for a fact that she's at times been very discontented with the ability of others in her party to form a coherent message. She's saying, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and, and do my own message. And there is a part at the end of the video where you see her out doing her campaign thing and she's, you know, fighting for working people. We're all familiar with the rhetoric by now. Uh, I, you know, I never thought that was a bad message. Uh, I have thought that Harvard Law Professor Elizabeth Warren was a bad vehicle for the message. Another politician from Massachusetts. Na- I mean, really, who, uh, will it ever end? But uh, 
Liz Warren of Oklahoma mm -hmm. roaring out of the prairie right. uh, with, you know, who raised tots. I mean, who doesn't like Hold the... Hold yourself up by her bootstraps. Almost like a frontiers woman. Yes. I think that has a lot more potential. Well, I do think it's interesting. You, you have this sort of, uh, I love that Holly Golightly illusion because the brothers, the three brothers, I think it's so interesting in the video, uh, call her Betsy. Yeah. And you see for a minute, oh... You know, this was the youngest girl yeah. who was going to get herself out of there. And she worked as hard as she could to be Elizabeth Warren, the professor. And, uh, you know, it's sort of in one moment, it tells a whole story about her life and what she went through. And you're right, seeing her with those brothers and hearing about her from their perspective could do a lot more than she can even do for herself. To be continued. So, John, Liam and I wanted to make sure that we got candidates into the studio to talk about the midterms. Lori Trahan won that wide-open Democratic field, of course, beating her next competitor by just about 150 votes. Yeah. So we had her into the studio. And then Rick Green, who is running as the Republican, who has a really interesting background as a local businessman. And um, what do you think of their contest in terms of the midterms? Are they a typical pair facing off or unusual because it's Massachusetts, of course? Well, in some ways, it's typical. A Trahan is a veteran Democratic operative. She was chief of staff for Marty Meehan when he was member of Congress from Lowell for a number of years. Uh, and Green also sort of fits the prototype of a Republican Small candidate around man. here. Successful businessman. He and his brother uh, went into online auto parts early on and made a fortune there. Um, but uh, the third district is one of the more intriguing congressional districts in Massachusetts. It's really one of the few districts where a Republican, at least in this day and age, can compete. It's been a long time since there's been a Republican from the third, but you have to go back to Paul Cronin uh, way back in the day. Uh, but uh, there are some conservative pockets of that district. Uh, it, cover, it includes the city of Lowell, a city where there are certain issues like immigration mm -hmm. that are hot-button issues where political correctness doesn't necessarily always carry the day. So I'm fascinated to see what you got from these two to compare them side by side. And we asked them if they were the winner, how they would have responded to the Columbia gas disaster. Listen in. Our city is truly the hub. The hub of the universe. So we know that you started off initially uh, as a Kasich supporter. You embraced President Trump eventually. We'll get into your feelings about all that, but why are you running for this congressional seat? Well, first and foremost, I'm a businessman, and uh, my brother and I started a business 20 years ago selling auto parts online in Pepperell, Massachusetts. And uh, folks know Pepperell is a small town up on the New Hampshire border. What they may not know is it was also a mill town, like many of the towns in the Merrimack Valley. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the early 2000s, the mill fell on hard times. A lot of folks lost their jobs, and uh, downtown was hit hard. But within just a few short years, uh, that little company that my brother and I started in a garage became the largest employer in town. And today we've created over 500 jobs. We're one of the largest sellers of online parts. Uh, we have over 6,500 YouTube videos where we empower our customers to do their own work. Uh, and when I tell people I know what it takes to get the economic engine of the third district revving, it's because I've done it. And I've, I've been so blessed with that success. This is my way of giving back, running for Congress to use my problem-solving skills uh, to make sure everyone else has the opportunity that I had. 
Where do you put yourself on the political spectrum? Would you consider yourself a Trump Republican, a Kasich Republican, something in between? Where do you put yourself? Sure, you know, I don't find the labels that helpful. Quite honestly, again, as a businessman, I see this as an interview with the people of the third district. They're the hiring manager, and they're going to decide mm -hmm. who's best to represent them and their interests. Uh, and they're the, the folks that I got to win over. Obviously, you're in a tough battle in a Massachusetts congressional race, right, as a Republican. And as a businessman, you know, you hear a lot of um, President Trump supporters who will say, uh, a lot like Bill Clinton's team, that it's the economy stupid, that, that the president has shown results, the economy is booming, and that that is what they are focused on and the rest is all noise. Would you say that that is where you are, that's what your message is? Uh, I know you don't, you don't like to talk about the president, but uh, at, at a certain point, it's going to come up how aligned you are with his policies. For you, is it just about business? No, it's not just about business. I mean, the economy is doing fantastic. My company is doing very well. Again, just, just speaking from my own experience, um, it's hard to find folks to work in some of the jobs. We have a lot of openings, and, and you know, there's, we're chasing the folks. Um, and that's great for the folks, and I'm, I'm glad it's that way. But the, the real issues I'm focused on, the local issues, take a step back. Um, you know, I've been on the trail for a year, and you know, what I noticed real early on is that there's this detachment. The folks feel a sense of they don't know what the federal government does and how it impacts them in their daily lives. Uh, so I, I started focusing on the local issues, and I found that actually got folks more engaged. Mm. When I started talking about things mm. that they could see, like their, the commute to work every day. So roads and bridges and infrastructure. You may have seen the commercial where I, I jump in the Merrimack River and I, I swim mm -hmm. across. But the Rourke Bridge is, is a temporary bridge. It's well, been there for 35 in years. Fact, speaking of infrastructure, the Merrimack Valley gas explosions, let's jump ahead to that question. Right. Because sure. that, of course, has disrupted lives in the 3rd District, in Lawrence Andover and North Andover. What would you have done differently about the response to that? And what do we need to do in terms of infrastructure? to stop something like this from happening again. Well, and I wasn't privy to, to everything that happened, but I do have some experience. Uh, I used to build rockets. I'm a, I'm a former rocket scientist, so I've, I've dealt with pressure systems, um, you know, very similar in terms of, you know, the, the gas distribution lines. What I'm most concerned about is what's going to happen going forward. So if you think about it, um, think about a balloon. You blow up a balloon, you know, you, it gets too big and it pops, and that's what you had with the explosions. It's horrible. Um, but... You know, for everybody, uh, the other homes, you know, when it shrinks back down, it's not the same. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's worn out. And so they're going to test all these, these homes, and they're going to let folks go back in. But now these, these homes have been exposed to a, a pressure way beyond their design. And so what I'm worried about is two, three years down the road, what's going to happen? Mm -hmm. I think if, if the right testing regimen is not done and the right maintenance protocols are not followed, you know, going forward from now on. So it's not just what's happening now. It's what's going to happen in the months, weeks, and years to come to make sure we don't have more gas leaks, more fires, and hopefully no more explosions. And you talk about infrastructure a lot, and your, and your TV ad shows you dealing with that bridge. Um, does it frustrate you when you look at the situation? Like, what would you want for the 3rd Congressional District out of Washington to help what is an aging infrastructure in Massachusetts? Absolutely. And again, I looked into this. So another thing we talked about is the Concord Rotary. Anybody who's driven on Route 2 knows the, the Rotary and Concord by the prison. And what I found is if you go to MassDOT's website, you can see every eight years for the last 24 or 32 years, they have a plan on how to fix it. But they start trying to line up the, the different regulatory approvals, and many of them are federal. Um, you know, they run out the clock, and then the the traffic study runs out and they have to start all over. We spent millions of dollars studying the problem. And it's time to stop spending that money studying the problem, you know, and, and put it to work. That is a local issue. We want to get to some of the national issues as well that you'll be dealing with heading into the midterms. Brett Kavanaugh, where do you stand on him? Governor Baker had said he wanted an FBI investigation. He wanted a pause in this to see what was going on. Where do you stand on Brett Kavanaugh? Well, look, I, I think we can all agree. Most of what's going on down in D.C. right now, it's, it's just a circus. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I'm not running to, to go join the circus. I want to fix 
local issues, roads and bridges, the opioid crisis, and again, we talked about jobs. Um, I'm, I haven't been watching uh, what's going on down there in particular. In the House, uh, we wouldn't have a vote on it. So there's, there's nothing. I learned a long time ago in business, if you can't have an impact on something, you know, leave it to other folks and focus on what you can make a difference on. Do you support President Trump's agenda 100% or will you break with him if you feel you need to break with him? Mm. I support any and all policies which are best for the people of the 3rd District. And I will support anybody from any party who's helping me to do something that's going to help the people in my district. How do you feel about sanctuary cities? I'm against them. Lawrence is a sanctuary city. Mm -hmm. The president has said he might strip funding, federal funding from Lawrence. Would you support stripping federal funding from Lawrence? Well, the first thing here is it's the rule of law. We have, first, we have to all agree that we're going to abide by the rule of law. Uh, my brother-in-law is a, is a naturalized citizen. I believe we need more immigration, legal, more legal immigration. But first, we have to all agree we're going to abide by the rule of law. Then and only then can we talk about what we're going to do. Um, and we just can't have sanctuary cities. The first thing I'm going to do when I go down there is take an oath of office and say, I'm going to support the Constitution and the federal laws. How can I run a campaign where I'm saying, you know, that I'm encouraging others to not do the same? Sure, but would you support stripping federal funding from them? Look, there's, there's no bill in front of me, and I'm not down in Congress. I'd have to take each bill, you know, on its merits. And, would you and look oppose at it. that if that were proposed? Again, I'd have to take a look at it and, and see what the proposal was. All right. Rick Green, thank you so much for being here tonight. Each day, hundreds of thousands of people pour into the one swift mile of downtown, mile of downtown. Lori Trahan is a candidate for the 3rd Congressional District. She just won that razor-thin primary to go to the general election in November. And, Lori, thanks so much for coming into the studio tonight. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you. For people just getting to know you, why are you running? I'm running to be a voice for families like the one I grew up in. I grew up in Lowell, Massachusetts, and uh, we were one of those families that lived paycheck to paycheck. Uh, and I think that there's, there are too many families across the district, uh, across the state of Massachusetts, that are feeling that economic anxiety. And so, you know, it's, uh, it's about affordable health care, mm -hmm. being able to afford your, uh, your children's tuition, and making sure that you have a good-paying job. So. Yeah. You yeah. won that recount in the 3rd yeah. Congressional District in the Democratic primary, but how many votes did you say? 145 votes, so every vote counts. Uh, there has been a wave of progressive candidates this year, almost in response to the Trump administration. Yeah. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez in New York, Ayanna Presley here in Massachusetts. Yeah. Uh, do you consider yourself a progressive, a moderate? Where do you put yourself in the political spectrum? Yeah, no, it's a great question. In fact, the, uh, the Boston Globe sort of coined it best uh, when calling me a pragmatic progressive. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I've got all those progressive values. Uh, I think right now I love that we have a bold vision for the future. I think that the Democratic Party needs to unite around a bold uh, vision and an optimistic path forward for 2018 midterms and the 2020 uh, presidential election. But I'm also really focused on what can be accomplished. Like, what can we get done? Where can we find coalitions to uh, fix some real problems that are affecting mm. families today? Speaking of real problems affecting <laughs> families, in the midst of your recount, of course, one of the big stories that we covered the last few oh. weeks is the disaster in yeah. uh, the 3rd Congressional District, yeah. Andover, North Andover, Lawrence, and the gas pipeline explosions. What do, would you have liked to have seen happen differently in the aftermath of the disaster? Right. And also, what repercussions do you think Columbia Gas should face? Right now, uh, you know, they're handing out hot plates and they're handing out space heaters, but we know that's not going to assuage the concerns of uh, seniors, people who have health issues. Uh, and then young families. So 
Uh, I'm looking forward to the investigation uh, and the outcome of that investigation that Senators uh, Markey and Warren have called upon. I think we have to know much more about what caused this. How do we prevent it in the future? The other big issue in the news this week and for the last few weeks has been the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. You, of course, in the House will not have a say, uh, even if you were in, in Congress at this point. Where do you stand on his confirmation and the current investigation being conducted by the FBI? Thursday and Friday, those were very important days for women, uh, for our country. The fact that the U.S. Senate almost uh, advanced uh, Kavanaugh's nomination, despite the compelling uh, testimony and ignoring the testimony of Dr. Ford, was a disgrace. Uh, I think that this FBI investigation, no matter what, should not be constrained by time. It should lead us to the truth. Uh, that's what we deserve. This, you know, the, this is one of the most important jobs uh, in our country. It's a lifetime appointment, and uh, and we have to, you know, hold the standards very high here. Would you be a no on him? Yes. We did want to ask you about some specific issues. You call yourself a pragmatic progressive. Um, we're looking for sort of a yes or no answer sure. on, on some issues. I'm just going to throw them at you. Are you for Medicare for all? Yeah, so I think Medicare for all should be the aspiration of our country. Uh, and we should be transforming and always think about how we should, can transform our health care system. In the meantime, and if we are years away from that, we do have to do something about rising prescription uh, price, uh, drug prices. We have to do something about the fact that families can't afford their premiums. What about abolish ICE? Do you support that? Yeah, I'm for radically transforming ICE. I, you know, I don't believe that anybody, even the people who are for abolishing ICE, truly believe that we should just stop doing everything that the agency was set out to do. But clearly the mission is, uh, is far afield from uh, what it was set up to do. Mm -hmm. And so we need to make sure that we bring humanity back to the agency and we also you know, secure our borders. Would you support impeachment for President Trump? You know, I am first and foremost, uh, uh, you know, supportive of keeping and protecting the independent investigation and, uh, and you know, Mueller's mm -hmm. uh, investigation, because that, I think, is going to lead us to, uh, to that vote, which will be uh, a very straightforward vote for, for all of us. You want to see what the, the investigation says first. Absolutely. You know, I, I, you know, I was a staff person during the Clinton impeachment trial, mm -hmm. and, uh, and you want, you know, you want to have a, a, a trial and a vote that's based on facts. Nikki Sagas kept a pretty low profile as a member of Congress. Is that your style, or would you weigh in more on national issues than she did? So, I don't know if I agree with the assessment that Congresswoman Song is. I mean, from my vantage point, she used her committee, her House Armed Services Committee, to really change and transform the culture uh, for women in the military. I mean, she's, you know, everything from changing the way they uh, designed and wore body armor to uh, to changing and really making a, an impact on sexual harassment. So, you know, I think... I think it was more... You didn't see her in the news <laughs> twice. Yeah, she was on national TV a lot. She was on yeah. national no, TV. No, yeah, and I don't think that's her style. I don't think mm -hmm. she is, uh, is in it you? for, um, you know, grabbing headlines, but she works really hard. And so, like her, I'd like to follow in those footsteps. I want to be effective. I want to be... Uh, I want to perform um, so that people have confidence in their representation that uh, that I hopefully have the uh, the privilege of of, uh, of giving them after as, this election. As a last question, there's been a lot of talk this year about is this the year of the woman, uh, much like 1992. Uh, you, of course, are a woman who has advanced the general election. There have been a lot of them throughout the country. Do you think that women make better politicians than men, and if so, why? 
You know, I'm, I'm elated that so many women are getting off the sidelines. Uh, you know, the 2016 election changed everything for me. Uh, so I understand why so many women are running. And even as I talked to moms, you know, this past weekend after watching the hearings, I mean, people are genuinely afraid of what the future might hold for their daughters, you know, for their, for their health, for their economic opportunity, for, for their safety. I don't need to read another study to know that better decisions are made when more women at the table. And we frankly need many, many more women in boardrooms across this country and in the halls of Congress. Well, we'll see what happens in November. Lori yes. Trahan, thanks so much for coming in Thank tonight. You. Thank I you. We appreciate it. it. Nice to meet it you. It's good meeting you. Okay, let's look at it. Put it online. So, you know, one of the interesting things about working in the Boston TV market I am always amazed by is just the people who pass through Boston on a monthly basis. Of course, we have so many universities nearby, hospitals. Uh, but Liam got a beat on the fact that General Dunford, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was going to be here. And sure enough, they made time for him. Liam was the only local reporter who got in. He had about 10 minutes to sit down with the general. And uh, they had a super interesting conversation. Well, he's been chair of the Joint Chiefs since 2015 and is actually a Quincy native as well. So he knows the area here. And uh, he and Liam uh, sat down to talk at a time when there are a lot of interesting issues swirling around the military, including the whole issue of transgendered service members and what's going to happen with them. Let's listen. That, then, is the way the You grew up in Quincy. Your father was a police officer, we understand, and you've just been awarded New Englander of the Year. Tell us what it means to you that your life of military service is being recognized in this way. Yeah, well, first of all, I'm, I'm going to accept the award tonight on behalf of the men and women that we have in uniform right now that I've had the privilege of spending my career around. And uh, and I'm appreciative that uh, that their service is, is recognized and, as importantly, the values for which they stand is being recognized. Do you think we're doing a good enough job taking care of our veterans right now, or should we be doing better? Look, we can always uh, do better. Uh, that's certainly a focus area for us and, and, and really all the leadership, but uh, I would never be complacent about something as important as taking care of our veterans. Let's talk a little bit about Space Force. There's been a lot of talk about this. There's a preliminary estimate from the Air Force estimating it's going to cost $13 billion over the first five years to establish this force. That's not within the Pentagon budget for 2020 and 2021. Do we need a space force, or is really, it potentially a waste yeah, of money? There's really two issues, Liam. Uh, first of all, is making sure that we most effectively employ the space capabilities that we have today, currently fielded, and uh, and to do that, we're standing up a space command that'll be stood up in uh, this December. That was that was a legislative initiative, and it's consistent with the guidance that the president gave us. And then the challenge that the president gave us is to ensure that we have the right organizational construct to develop the space capabilities that we need for tomorrow. And we're still working through options that the president will have an opportunity to make a choice about that in the coming months. Is there enough money in the budget to take on a task that's this large? Look, there's an imperative for us to make sure that we're uh, most effective in fielding the capabilities we need in space tomorrow. So we'll find a way to do that. You made headlines last year when you publicly urged the Trump administration not to ban transgender service members from service. Why did you publicly speak out on that issue? 
Well, what I really spoke out about, Liam, was just to the force at the time, just saying that I believe that every single man and woman in uniform deserved to be treated with dignity and respect. And what I was, what I was uh, making clear at the time was that no final decision had been made in, uh, with regard to the disposition of those on active duty. Did you worry about the message that was being sent to current service members who are transgender? about whether or not they're wanted in the force? Yeah, look, I, I, it's, it, I can't talk about uh, transgender in any more detail because it's in litigation in the federal courts, and that really precludes me from talking about the issue publicly. Beyond the litigation, where does it currently stand? What is the current policy? Yeah, the current policy uh, hasn't changed. So those currently serving uh, have been allowed to serve, provided that they're physically and mentally capable of performing their duties and being worldwide deployable. What you would like to see happen is that they continue to be able to do that. William, as I said, I, I, I can't talk about the issue publicly because it's in, uh, in the federal court system in litigation. Afghanistan. You were a commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan. It seems no matter how many times we push the Taliban back, they seem to come back. They have a fairly profitable poppy trade in Afghanistan, the Taliban does. What does victory in Afghanistan look like? Sure. Well, first of all, uh, what we're trying to do is put sufficient pressure on the Taliban, sufficient political pressure, sufficient social pressure, sufficient religious pressure, and then sufficient military pressure. And when I say we, uh, we supporting the Afghan National Defense Security Forces and putting pressure on them. So they are convinced that they cannot uh, win on the battlefield uh, what they cannot, what they haven't uh, tried to achieve in the battle box. So we're trying to integrate them into the political process with a reconciliation process that's led by the the Afghan government. Is it a frustrating process to work in Afghanistan? You take one step forward with training Afghan forces. You have corruption at times in the government of Afghanistan, and then the Taliban will regain a foothold. Has it been a frustrating process to watch over these past 17 years? Yeah, what, I, what I've learned from now over four decades of uniform and, and both uh, the practice and the study of war is that war is filled with what we call friction, chaos, and, uh, and fog, and so it's difficult, and, there's, and, uh, and there are challenges, and so we just need to have the endurance to make sure we overcome those challenges and achieve the objectives that have been outlined by, by our leadership. One of the big objectives is training the Afghan forces so that they can eventually do this sort of thing on their own. If you had to put a percentage to it, how far along are we in training Afghan forces so that we can get our men and women out of there? Yeah, well, let me, let me put it in some perspective for you. When I was in command in Afghanistan, we had over 140,000 coalition forces, 100,000 Americans, 40,000 from our NATO countries and partners. At that time, we had probably something less than 200,000 Afghan National Defense Security Forces. Today, we have close to uh, 300,000 Afghan National Defense Security Forces. There's 15,000 Americans as opposed to, to 100,000, and there's 5,000 NATO forces as opposed to 40. So I think we've come a long way. There's been a big reduction there. Saudi Arabia. Uh, we have a complicated relationship with Saudi Arabia, both militarily and politically. Recently, there's been an arrest, potentially a murder, of a U.S. resident and a Washington Post columnist in, uh, by the Saudis, potentially by the Saudis. Um, what is our current military position on Saudi Arabia, and are we potentially too friendly with the Saudis? Okay, well, there's two separate issues. The, 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 uh, the, the current issue is one, I don't have anything to add to what our political leadership has said uh, to the investigation that's ongoing in Ankara. But with regard to Saudi Arabia in general, they have been a partner of the United States for decades in the Middle East. Uh, we have some shared security goals uh, with Saudi Arabia in the region, and we work closely with them where we have common interests. 
are we better off with that relationship or potentially we, are we, yeah, are we I think the American people are, are well off if there's a stable, secure Middle East and Saudi Arabia is a key player in uh, providing security and stability in the Middle East. Last question, General. What keeps you up most at night as Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? Yeah, Liam, what I, what I would probably say what keeps me up most at night is uh, not meeting the expectations of the young men and women in uniform that I'm fortunate enough to lead. And so every day I wake up trying to make sure that I meet their expectations and provide them with the support and the leadership that they deserve. Well, General Joseph Dunford, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and New Englander of the Year for 2018, thank you so much for chatting with us. Hey, thanks, Liam. Thanks. Our newscasters, our editors all work as an efficient, well-coordinated, fact-finding team. So hopefully Liam will be back to join us next week, but this was a good one. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Good good work on those interviews. And uh, don't forget, I want to remind everybody, this Friday night, yes, uh, the 19th at 8 p.m., live on our sister station, TV 38, also uh, streaming on CBSBoston.com, it's the uh, Warren Deal debate, the first debate in the race for Senate. And uh, with all the stuff... With the Warren and the Native American yeah, heritage. Should be a cracker. Should be especially interesting. <laughs> That's right. And no one does it better than our John Keller. Uh, please join us uh, for that debate. Contact us on Twitter at Studio BZ Pod or I am at Paula Evan WBZ. And at Keller at Large. Or at Liam WBZ. That's right. And until Liam joins us again, we'll, we'll be, be seeing, seeing you. you, whether you like it or not. <laughs> <laughs>